welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 64 with Adit Levine, founder and CEO of Solo.io, an API gateway and service mesh company with a product called Glue, G-L-O-O, not to be confused with Glue, G-L-U-U, the company that I lead who sponsors this podcast. I'd been trying to get Adit on the podcast for many years, ever since I spoke with her at an open source conference in 2019, and finally her PR agent reached out to me a few months back, and of course I agreed immediately. Solo is not your typical startup journey. It's sort of a miracle it got off the ground, but once it did... They didn't waste any time. They're already breaking $10 million in sales. To avoid spoiling the story, I should just stop here. So let's cut to the interview. Adit, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. My first question, and this is sort of a different one, but it's been something I've been thinking about, is when you first started Solo.io, which was not that long ago, I think five or six years ago, did you join an incubator and why or why not? I did not, I wasn't even aware that there exists, honestly. Uh, when I started the company, what I knew is that I had, uh, you know, some technical friends that I knew that I can start it and basically start doing this. The, the software it was more about the technology. So I needed to learn while I'm raising money and so on. Honestly, like, I think that the first VC that I uh, met, they asked me about pitch and I asked, I asked, what is a pitch? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? So, you know, I really didn't know much. I needed to learn. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't aware at all on incubation and definitely not in days because it's not very popular. So I just basically started the company around software and just tried to get some money in order to kind of like bootstrap the company. But that's basically the thing. So I w- honestly, mainly because I, did, I wasn't aware. Do you think if you could do it again, you'd use an incubator? No, now I feel that I learned so much from that processes. I'm totally like, you know, I, I don't know that I need one drastically, like, you know, I think it's very good for a first, like a first founder that, you know, maybe not aware of a lot of stuff. That's really helpful to be kind of like protected by team that done it before and know how to help you and guide you. Today, I think I learned enough on the process, right? I mean, I'm doing it for a while right now and I, you know, I made a mistake. I learned from them. So now I'm, I'm feeling that I'm more fit to actually, you know, do it myself again if I need to. So at the time you raised your seed funding, was the open source project started? Did you have any technology? Did you have any initial customers or team? Like, where was what was the state of the business when you closed, let's say, the seed round? Yeah, no, no, there was nothing, honestly. Before that, I worked in EMC. Part of EMC, my job was to basically do cool stuff on open source, honestly, right? It wasn't a business. I was in the CD office, and my job was to basically, you know, evaluate new technology and figure out how we can play there. Basically, we did a lot of... Uh, open source and event development, we immediately kind of like were playing back then in Kubernetes and, you know, Mesosphere and Mesos and all this, those great kind of like technology. Docker was just a new thing back then. So, you know, again, playing on that ecosystem was immediately thing that we done. So when I started the company, there were two things that in the beginning I started pitching. The first thing that I was pitching was Unikernel. It took me a few months to understand that it's not something that I would be able to ever raise money on. I probably for good reason. By the time we were at home, you know, I was pretty bored. So I built another open source project called Squash. And that was an open source project that related to debug microservices in Kubernetes. And that was relatively a successful project. But mainly, as I said, I think that the reason I got money is because the work that I was doing before in the open source, I had a lot of, uh, I, a little bit built a reputation of someone capable of doing cool projects. And how many VCs did you pitch um, in your initial seed funding round? Oh, man, a lot. 
I mean, as I said, it, it, again, remember, I was in the East Coast. Uh, but once I uh, decided to do it, you know, seriously, I left DNC. And then I basically went to West Coast where there was VC that more, you know, in that space. And, I, you know, yeah, I got a lot of those, a lot. Um, I think like every founder, right? So I don't want to go too deep into the tech, but when I look at the Solo website, I see there are a few products. I'm wondering if there's like an 80-20 rule here where one of the products accounts for 80% of the revenues. So we don't have 20, 80, actually. That's interesting. I think it's probably 50-50. And the reason is because also the way we're packaging it is a lot of the time we're selling them together. So if you look at all the projects, the main two markets that we're going after is the gateway and the mesh market. We started with the gateway mainly because the mesh wasn't, you know, we couldn't sell it, right? So we started from the gateway and we knew that this is kind of like an entry point and kind of like a stepping stone to a service mesh. So that felt very in the area. And I believe that in the future, it will be more the the mesh will grow more. So one of the challenges of a startup is always the first customer, especially if you're selling in the enterprise space. How did you convince this customer to be first? What did they actually buy? And whatever they bought, does that resemble your current offering today? Yeah. So actually, as I said, like we started selling the gateway. And that was, you know, flagship product of the company. When we started, basically, what we did is we had three design partners in a way. Now, we di- I didn't do it the, the, the regular way. We did it from open source. We didn't go and talk to customers and say, what do you want us to build? And then we build it. We more like were in the open source and kind of like say, okay, that seems like the right thing to do. Kubernetes came, you need a new API gateway. You want it probably on, an, you know, an Envoy. That's what we believe people want. And then we went to pitch. And a lot of those customers came for us from the open source community. So we learned a lot from that process. What we did, and we did it differently because we're coming from open source. We basically manage all our relationship with our customer through Slack, then understood what we need to do in order to make that very, very successful in their infrastructure. And we basically got all those requirements and built it to the product. It's very different to build an open source project versus to an enterprise environment. So what would you say is the most important thing that motivates your customers to buy your product? I think that today, Solo is kind of like three things that we are very good at. Number one is we really, really understand the market really, really well and the technology in it. So we know what's coming up. We know what is trendy and what is not. We know we're looking at adoption. We really, really understand that very well. So we always can promise to the customer that we will bring them to the edge of the technology. If there is new technology that is will be relevant, we probably will put it in our product. So I think that's one thing that customers like. So the, the perception of Solo is as an innovative company, which it is. It's what we are. The second one, I think, is customer success, which was always one of the things that are most important to us. You know, this work with Slack. When I started it, everybody told me that's not going to scale. And surprisingly today, when we have hundreds of customers, it's still scaling. And the technology itself, like if you're looking right now, there was a lot of shift in the market in terms of, you know, the infrastructure that you're running, most likely running in something like Kubernetes. So it makes sense that you will have a cloud native gateway. And when you start scaling and scaling and scaling, it makes sense that you will have, you know, that you will take care of something like MTLS and security and zero trust and observability and all those microservices. It's just, this is a needed technology when you're going to scale. And that's where the market of microservices less Kubernetes is right now. Solo is an interesting company in that, in a way, you write software, you write a lot of software, but you also have a curated distribution 
of open source components that you give your customers a control plane to manage and take advantage of. So it's not just the software that you're writing, but without Envoy and without Kubernetes and without Cilium, you, you really maybe couldn't even build the product. So do you think that maybe this is a new model where you add a little software on top of this huge curated distribution of other very complicated components? Instead of creating the open source project, and we do have one, right? I mean, for instance, Glue Edge is, Glue is a technology that is an API gateway based on our technology. And it is based on Envoy, but Kong did the same thing before. I think that what really good at what we were very good at identifying pretty much from the beginning is which will be those technology that will win. Envoy, we bet on Envoy when, honestly, Envoy was relatively a very small community. No one really knew about it. And Nginx was the chosen proxy right? We chose STO, even though we could have competed like everybody else and tried to build a better service mesh. But I knew that that will be the chosen mesh, even though when we looked at it, it was pretty messy. And we knew that it would take it a while to get there. We still was very, very, I was very, very aggressive to my team and saying, we are not going to build a competitor. We are going to use that. And the reason is because the software that win is not always the, the best software, right? It's the software that most people is leaning to because they will make it eventually the best software. And I think that that was something that, that Solar's recognized very well. So all those technology, all those projects that we're doing, it's basically we building, and I will not say a little bit, we're building quite a lot of logic, ease of use and, and enhanced technologies on top of those, let's call it basic functionality, basic component that you need. There is a lot of complexity actually in the control plan, way more than in the data plan, for instance. So, but yeah, I think that this is, you know, as I said to you, this is my model. <laughs> Hopefully, Seller will succeed with it. But yeah, I believe that the open source is building an amazing technology and we should, we should leverage the best. We're also contributing a lot of those technologies, right? I mean, if you're looking at um, STO right now, the new, the new thing that we did with MBN that we and Google donated, it's mainly we are the main contributor to it, right? And STO, we're contributing a lot. We have a full team that all responsibilities to, con- to contribute. If you look at this, it's probably, I think, the most engineers that are working today on, on, on STO is coming from Solar. So I was looking at the, the open core model. What I'm actually more curious about is there's always this friction between what do we put in the community version and what do we open source? What's the decision process behind deciding whether a plugin will be commercial or non-commercial? In the beginning, you know, in the beginning when we started, you know, we had nothing, right? We put everything in the open source. But then in one point we understood that that's a problem because eventually somehow you're not going to exist as a company if you're not going to make a little bit of money at least, right? So we needed to figure out that what we're putting on top of it that will make sense will not hurt the open source because it's very important to us that open source will be successful, right? That's why we continue contributing constantly to the open source. But we also need to make sure that we will have something that differentiates on top of it. And the decision was in the beginning, in the beginning where we thought about it, the enterprise feature that people actually really, really want to have a provider helping them was security or stuff that related to, you know, enterprise feature like HA. So that's the stuff that we put in enterprise. The question is usually around technology. Would it make sense to be in the core open source project because, you know, that's where it's belong. It's a kind of like core feature or it's actually an extension to that open source project. And therefore, it can go theoretically to be in the enterprise uh, edition. So to us, it was very important that the core should be open. That's the, the way we're doing it. 
I always warn entrepreneurs that pricing is one of the most challenging aspects of the of a tech startup in particular. Can you share maybe some of the lessons you learned about how to price in in the first few years? Like, did you get pricing right initially? Did you have to really major do a major pivot? Like, what was your experience like there? And do you have any lessons learned in pricing? Try to do it. I said to myself, okay, so maybe the real unit of compute, for instance, in the gateway is supposed to be the, the API call. But honestly, that will take a lot of time for me. And honestly, it's also going to be a pain for my customer. So how can I still value how much they're using without actually be interfering too much to the customer or honestly to my engineering team? And what I came with in the beginning is that the data plan is usually a good assumption because if you have a lot of call, you probably want to scale that data plan, right? So that would be a good interaction. And data plan, it's easy to call, right? I mean, the customer tells me I have five clusters. This is how much data plan I'm using. Boom, very easy to measure it. And honestly, we didn't even force it. If people use it more, honestly, that's fine. So that was the beginning. When we added the service mesh, it was, you know, there is way more data plan and there also way more potentially change because you have the sidecar and the sidecar is basically going directly with the application, the microservices, the microservices going up and down. So very hard, hard to basically figure out. So we needed to change that model and we went to the cluster model. We said, just let's keep it simple. We don't want it, again, it's all about keeping it simple. That's what was important to me. I don't want my customer to need to add a PhD in order to understand the way we do pricing. So that's what I did. And again, it's probably cost me some money, right? They probably left some money on the table and that was fine. Again, it was all about, and it is still in solo, is the partnership. It's all about the relationship that we have with our customer and it's a real partnership. We are seriously the extension of their team. But you know, stuff changing all the time, right? So, so there is always, you need to adjust right? And honestly, you're learning that from your customer. So for instance, what we saw right now is that some of the customers that are basically using us is more like an advanced development center kind of thing, innovation centers, like, you know, CTO offices or, you know, the innovation center on the IT. And when they're starting, usually what they want, they, they, their job is to basically build something to offer to the business unit. So the question is, the money is not going to come from them. You cannot expect them to have tons of budget to pay you to run it. So what they really want is more the consumption model, right? What they will want is to create something and, you know, get the platform available everywhere without paying millions of dollars. But then they will basically enable teams to come after. And that's a different, right? So then the model should be different. It can be how much cluster you're running because it could be that you're running an empty cluster in the beginning. What it is should be is how much workload you're running, right? So we needed to adjust based on the customers. So it's always a moving, you know, kind of like we're learning from the customer how we can make it. But again, to me, the, the way I'm looking at this, and that's always my motto, true for building, writing software or for, you know, selling product is I want to take the challenges on my team, right? So for instance, I prefer right now to build a sophisticated metering that will make the best customer and user experience for my my customer, even if it's harder. You know, I was reading an article and it said that you were projecting five to six times growth for the next year. What is it key to attaining this high rate of growth? How is that possible? First of all, the market. And that's very, very important. Like for instance, when we started, we had the gateway that was one very popular and everybody needed. And then we mesh came, right? But it took for a while until mesh will be everywhere. But right now there is a lot of stuff that's going really, really well for us. And that's what allowing us to go. One number one is for instance STO is going to the graduation. So we actually choose the right service mesh. And not only this, it's going right now to graduation, which is showing maturity. 
Uh, so that's by itself means that there is more demand from the market. You just need to have the right market a product to sell. And when customers want it, it's relatively easy to grow. Um, but I will not going to say that it's not challenging. Definitely in this economy and in, you know, because it could be that we have an amazing product and amazing, you know, and we raise, so we have tons of money. That's not really helpful if our customer doesn't have money, right? They're not going to buy. Again, at that point, you need to make sure that the product is necessary piece in your infrastructure that people will need to spend money for it, even if there is recession. Just again, listen to the market, make sure that you have the right market fit, which I think is the most important. Thinking about the packaging thing, uh, you make it very, very easy for people to consume your product. You've mentioned that you're data oriented. And I'm wondering, what are some of the most important metrics that you track? Right. So, you know, this is a good question. I mean, if you ask my CFO, is a very, very data oriented person. A lot of the metrics that is running is metrics is number, right? How many BOC we're doing? How much because they're in production and that kind of stuff, right? Data that I'm looking at is different than the data that my CFO, the metrics that they're looking at. I think that like every business, it's all about people. It's all about the people in the business. It's all about the people in the market. Why did AWS decided to do this? Why is Google decided to do this? What's going on inside this organization? All this information is not a metrics person. But it's data that you need to collect in order to make the right decision. How do I predict that five or six years ago that there are going to be a lot of clusters and people will need service mesh for each and SDO will be that service mesh? That was pretty crazy to do this five years ago. But I had enough data that will lead me to believe, a lot of data that lead me to believe that this is the direction that we need to go. So, you know, the business, we, you know, we do have the metrics of, you know, how many customers success. Otherwise, you cannot scale. You need to know when something is wrong. And you, you can, you know, big enough organization right now that I'm not everywhere and I don't know everything anymore. What gives you the most joy as CEO? <laughs> always your job is to basically kind of like try to cover the gap that you have in the company, right? So if at the beginning I had engineers, but we didn't have anybody to do evangelism and kind of like, you know, after it, we grow and then we got those evangelists. So I'm not doing evangelism anymore, right? You always go and doing more stuff. And, and to me, the way I'm looking at this, honestly, when I'm waking up in the morning is what is the next fire that I need to put off? Honestly, like, where do I have a problem? What is not working well the way it's working, right? It's seriously like, that's how you should think about it. You know, where is the next fire will come from and how am I covering it? And to me, you know, I'm, I'm a person that easily being bored. So I like, I like learning. I like seeing what the problem I, you know, I like knowing like I'm dangerous in every position in the company, right? Potentially I'm dangerous enough. Now, after six years that I learned all of those. So I think that the fact that it's never boring, honestly, I wish it was a little bit more boring. You know, think about it. Like, I mean, I heard a, a joke for someone that uh, said, founder that started company in the last five years, what did they need to overcome, right? So we needed to overcome COVID. We needed to overcome the SVB, the Silicon Valley, Valley Bank floor. We needed to overcome the fact that all our competitors suddenly could have raised in $100 million, you know, like crazy valuation for seed money. And so, so there was a lot to overcome this time. So it's never boring. And I think as someone that likes challenges, that, that drive me, drive me. I want to be the best. I want to win. So that's what I'm enjoying it. And, and I got an advice from um, Diane Green, who is the founder of uh, VMware. And she was um, one of the people that started Google Cloud. And so one of the, the feedback that she gave me when I started it, she basically said to me, you can decide which type of CEO you should be. Keep the stuff that you really like to do or you really feel that you're a huge differentiator. In my case, it's the technology, it's the strategic, right? So that is my strength. And, you know, bring strong people next to you to cover the stuff that, you know, you can give away. 
right? And my cell phone says it's the go-to-market. So that to me is, is kind of like the way I'm looking at this. But, it does, but you know, honestly, as a CEO, you're doing a lot of the stuff that you don't want, right? I mean, your job is to fix the problem or to cover stuff and to enable the other team. So, you know, if I need to help my engineer by going and order them food, I will do that. If I need, you know what I mean? Buy the, the, the monitor and give it to me. I will do everything I need to enable the team. Basically. That's, that's, I think, very important. If you could go back five years or six years and give Adit some advice, um, what would that advice be? And it doesn't have to be at the very founding. It could be in the early stages too. Wow, I learned so much. It's very challenging to run a big team and make everybody align. As, and the company is growing more and more and more. That's become harder and harder. I think that the advice that I will do tell you that tell my, my, my younger it is basically just follow your instincts like like listen to people but eventually you know make your own decision i think that the thing that was that the thing that i was doing wrong in the company was a lot of the time it's like you know i hired a leader for marketing or go to market and i knew that this is not my strength right i learned so even though i didn't believe or i thought that what they're doing is wrong i let them do it because i said look they are the expert i'm not an expert in marketing so let them do this and, you know, I pay a big price for it because I felt that actually they were like a lot of the time they were wrong and it's out the company. So I think that what I learned today and why I think that today I'm a bit of, better leader than I was back then is because I'm going to die or succeed on my mistake. And honestly, because there's nothing more frustrating than to come and take responsibility for someone else's mistake. So again, it doesn't mean that you're not going to listen. It doesn't mean that you're not going to, you know, right? I mean, very much, but... After all the data that you're getting, if you believe, like, trust your instincts. Don't assume that uh, someone else knows your business better than you. Definitely, it's someone new. And I think that this is something that I made a mistake for a lot of time. I feel multiplied time before I got, you know, I said that, okay, that's it. Well, Adit, thank you so much for sharing um, all that experience and know-how. And, um, and best of luck with Solo, although it doesn't look like you need it. It looks like you're doing amazing. So congrats. You always need more, like, <laughs> but thanks. Special thanks to Adit and the Solo team for reaching out. Cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Zabriskie, and Lee Rosevere. Next episode is expected Jan of 2024, an interview with Nick Schrock of Dagster. I'm slowing down a little bit, but I'm still trying to do four episodes a year. Don't forget the State of Open Conference is returning to London, Feb 6th and 7th. So until next time, this is Mike Schwartz, and thanks for listening to Open Source Underdogs.